we've been in this series proclaimed for the last few weeks. We'll be here for a few more weeks. Um, the early church, we've been looking at the early church and how it proclaimed um, reconciliation with God in Christ. And uh, that, that being revealed in Scripture, or rebe- revealed in prophecy, uh, foreshadowed in Scripture, revealed in Scripture, and then confirmed by eyewitness of the early church proclaiming boldly over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts that that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ uh, brings salvation, brings transformation through repentance of sin and our identification with Jesus, right? Um, that, That we believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ, that our sins are forgiven once and for all, Right, that we have reconciliation with God as a result of Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a great passage for that. Everlasting salvation due to Christ, not based on any work uh, of ours, uh, anything that we do to attain it or, or keep it, right? Before or after we encounter Jesus, doesn't matter. You know, once saved, always saved. That's what we believe here at 6-8. Believing that salvation is based on my ability to earn favor or merit with God in any way, either before I come to Christ or after I'm in Christ, uh, after my submission to him, is really a works-based righteousness. It is a self-righteousness, right? Um, Salvation is no longer by grace through faith in him alone, meaning that Christ died for nothing and we're still in the same predicament, right? Rather, what we believe is that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been laid upon us, right? Once and forever, that I do nothing to earn it even after my salvation. And if you remember a few weeks back, a few of you really uh, thought that this was helpful. We go through life and we have our record, right? That, you know, I, I, I have, you know, at the end of my days, you know, if somebody could read my life, they, <laughs> there might be things in this book that I wouldn't want you to read, right? The secret things that, you know, in my head or things that I've done that I'm not very proud of, the sinful things of my life. There are probably some really good things in this book too, you know, really positive, wonderful things, things that are actually godly and good. But this is my record, right? And then Christ comes along and he has his record. He lives his, this life, he walks this earth, and he is perfect, And if you read this, you'd never find a sin in it. You'd never find anything wrong in it. Jesus was the only human being to ever walk this earth and be perfect. And what Christ did on the cross uh, and in his resurrection was he took his his record and he covers out us, right? And so we are covered by Christ. That's what it means to have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So that now when God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect record of Christ. And all throughout my life, now on, I'm being sanctified and being changed. I'm being transformed into the likeness of Christ. God is dealing with those things that are wrong in me. And Christ, what he does is he takes my sin upon himself. And he becomes sin so that we can be freed from it. And I just think that is such a central substance of the gospel that we have to remember. The good news, the gospel, right? available to all peoples in Christ, despite background, despite past, despite our sins, our culture, our tribe, our language, whatever it is, 
And that when we come to Christ as Jesus' followers, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We've been charged with bringing this to, to other people, to bring this revelation of God to all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, as Scripture speaks of. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which you are probably tired of hearing me quote, but it says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying this, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Christ walks with us through this. And when Scripture speaks of nations, it doesn't speak of nations in political boundaries, but as ethnic boundaries, ethno-linguistic boundaries. Jesus and Scripture have always been clear that the gospel is for all peoples, right? The whole human race, the whole human race. And that is the Christian worldview, or at least in part, the Christian worldview. But the problem is that you know, we find that enculturation and tradition run deep in us as people, right? And enculturation is that really the definite definition is the gradual acquisition of the characteristics and beliefs and norms of a culture by a person. So from birth till now, you are being enculturated in your culture, right? You, you are being formed and shaped by it. Now, our worldview is shaped by that process, and, the, and that is the lens that we perceive and we process reality, right? And we feel worldview tension right now, many of us do, in, uh, with many people in our society pushing hard for changes in views on sexuality or the human family and who gets to raise children and abortion. We just saw that you know, pop out this week in a, in a great way. But these are worldview questions. They are at the core of our soul because it's how we view reality. What is life? How valuable is life? You know, you know when does it start? And da, da, da. And that is all, that all conflicts with the world's worldview and our, what should be our Christian worldview. And that is why the Christian church has always stood on the side of not aborting children. And I don't mean to make anybody that has had one in this room to feel badly about that. That's not my intention. But what I'm saying is, as a theological concept or construct, we believe that life is valuable because that, is, that comes from a Christian worldview. Uh, we also believe that sexuality is at the core of our soul and, and, and what, what it means that we reflect God and how he created humankind and all these things. So these are big questions for us and that's why we feel such big tension in these things right now. Because a worldview answers the question, what is real? right? What is reality, right? Which defines our beliefs, answering the question, what is true, you know? And then that, that goes on to values, answering the question, what is good or best, which goes on to our behavior. All of that drives our behavior. What is done, which gets to our artifacts. In other words, uh, you know, answering the question, what's made or produced or obtained in society. So it, it goes on to the objects or the the, uh, the concepts, the laws, you know, like in the 1990s, I was just talking to somebody this week, everybody started building what we called McMansions. And George Carlin did a whole thing on like, you know, we gotta get more, we gotta get a bigger house and stuff. That comes from our worldview. 
And we can see the worldview struggle in, in this popular lawn sign. And if you have it on your lawn, don't feel judged by me. But, um, but this is a worldview lawn sign, right? Is it up there? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but, but beliefs reflect worldview. So whoever is putting this on their lawn is telling us, in this house we believe, which reflects a worldview. Black lives matter. Of course they matter, right? We, we know that. We, we agree with that. Women's rights are human rights. They're humans, sure, right? We agree with that. That's a no-brainer. No human is illegal. Agreed. No human is illegal. But actions by humans can be illegal actions, right? Uh, science is real. Well, if they mean an explanation of an aspect of the natural world that's been repeatedly tested and corroborated in accordance with the scientific method, then sure, agreed. But science is not the answer to all the ills of the world as is put forth these days. Amen. Amen. Love is love. Agreed, but probably not in how this person uh, wants to say it or, or means it, right? Kindness is everything. Over-exaggeration, but it's helpful in all situations, right? Now, they may have a claim to have a scientific worldview. Since they say in the signs, science is real and a worldview addresses reality. But science can't be a worldview any more than an elephant can be a, be a bicycle. Science is simply a method of exploration into the natural world, and scientific theories are constantly being overturned with new evidence as we explore our world. It's really, if you look at it, it's really a humanistic worldview, right? With human being, humans at, at the center, right? Because it, it's focused on human values and human rights. Human experience is the ultimate reality minus probably the, construct, the con constraints of religion or a god in the universe. Claiming they are scientific seems very rational, very logical, born of the Hegelian dialect, you know, like a dialectic, the thesis, uh, antithesis, and then synthesis, right? You have a thesis about something in the world, you, 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 you argue against it, the antithesis, and then you synthesize all of that to come to a new conclusion, and that's always happening in the science, scientific world. And that is the scientific process that people say that they trust. And what we trust is what we worship. Think about that. What we trust is what we worship. Trust and worship are synonymous. But what, what people forget is the human element the human element, sin of the deceptive heart of humankind, right? So when science doesn't accommodate human desire, science is bent to accommodate. So if a desire to fly is strong, one might even bend the science to say that gravity is only a social construct, but that doesn't make it so. Jump off an overpass and you're going to find out pretty quickly. When science doesn't give you the political power that you want, you bend science so that it does. And we've all seen this happen over the past few years. If we look at past American culture, we confess that there's been a wrong worldview where being white was viewed as the real human experience, leading to believe that others were less than human and accepted as truth and enough people, not in everybody by the way, but enough people to become this dominant force in society in the past. 
which led to the value of what's good and best is to separate and subjugate and oppress non-white peoples, which led to behaviors played out in slavery and non-voting rights and sitting in the back of the bus and separate water fountains, etc. What was done, right? Which led to artifacts in the forms of laws and signage and places of separation, double water fountains and so on and so forth, which is what society produced. And that's sad. It's hard to admit that the prevailing worldview in America was so evil. And it warrants repentance on everybody's part. But recognize that we do nothing without thought. Thought is born of our values and our beliefs. And thoughts manifest into action. So it's very important that we check our hearts. And when thoughts are wrong, Behavior and what we produce become evil and destructive. This is why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Where do you get the knowledge of God? From the scriptures. And we take captive every thought, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As Christians, therefore, we allow, uh, we intentionally allow Jesus by his scriptures and by his Holy Spirit to shape worldview, or in other words, our reality. And that, my friends, is obedience. That is the act of faith. Jesus gets to formulate our beliefs and our values and behavior and what we produce, and, and, and that's all how it's supposed to work. Which is why Jesus, who ultimately does bring peace in reconciliation with God and with others, said he first brings division since he knew that people would not accept his message. Now, tradition is like enculturation in that it's the transmission of customs and beliefs from generation to generation. And if we, for instance, think about our faith tradition, you know, whatever a person's faith tradition is, uh, certain things have been ingrained in our psyche about faith, about worship, about church, about, you know, how we do the Christian life. In other words, what's real and what's true and what's good or best and what's done and what's produced. And some of that is true to Scripture, some not. Some not. And all denominations propagate certain things which aren't fully probably copacetic with the scriptures, right? Some do better than others, and errant beliefs are largely due to culture and not official denominational positions, or they are simply gray areas that we can, you know, kind of disagree on. But largely, they are issues which don't undermine the sort of foundational substance of the gospel message, Some believe, for instance, that worship styles, some worship styles to be glorifying to God and others are just plain wrong, right? And that is an issue that is easily argued since substance, the basic message of the gospel within those churches is unchanged despite different worship styles. It's just preference, tomato, tomato, right? What's more difficult are the deeper beliefs under the surface and how we view God and view other people that are formed not by the scriptures but by our surrounding culture. We, we should concern, our, we, we should, 
what should concern us is not uh, the varied forms of worship, but the substance of worship. Some forms may be representative of errant substance, but most are just different expressions of the same gospel substance. And there are certain substance problems in certain churches and denominations. Uh, If you have a Catholic background, believe me, what I'm about to say is not to bash, but there are differences. There are differences. Protestants split from Catholicism on the foundational subject of justification by faith alone in Christ. We did. And it was that important that we felt we had to walk out the door, right? Take a look at this. This is the basic difference. And it's a big difference, right? Protestants don't believe that baptism, the act of baptism does that. The act of baptism in the Protestant church is a symbol of what's already happened to you in Christ. It does no magic. If you don't get baptized, if you, I confess to you in one minute and the next minute you have a heart attack and you die, you're still going to heaven, right? We don't believe we don't view baptism, we don't view justification, salvation, or our sanctification, our walk in Christ in a Catholic way. It's, what, it's not what Scripture teaches, and it's not what Jesus taught. Can a person be saved in that system? Possible. Yes, God is great, and that is possible, but it is more by chance than design, more by chance than communication of the gospel. The errant substance of that message actually leads people away from Jesus and not to him, giving a false sense of security in a system of works-based righteousness or self-righteousness. It is a foundational difference of gospel substance. Substance is extremely important. It is of the utmost importance. Now, form is also important, forms of worship, things like that, in that they can lead us to Christ, and lead us into worship of Christ. But they can be abandoned or reimagined when they cease to do this or they begin to take on a substance other than the true gospel of Christ. Join me, if you can, in your pew Bibles, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, page 751. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. But let me preface by saying that just prior to this passage today, we see the story of the Roman centurion, Cornelius, drawn to faith in Jesus, right? He's a Gentile being drawn to faith in Christ. And in verses 1 through 3 of that chapter, it says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. Now that vision instructed him to seek out Peter, the apostle Peter, and to hear what he had to say. He wanted wanted him to to come and talk to him. And so he is clearly a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's pursuing God nonetheless, but he is unclear as to what the gospel message is. He hasn't heard it. He doesn't know it yet. And the problem is that Jews regarded all Gentiles as dogs, right? Less than human, especially a Roman centurion. And Peter even says in verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
Now, he had come to that conclusion since God had simultaneously given Peter a vision in order that he would not avoid Cornelius, that he would go to him and he would preach the gospel to him since Cornelius needed to hear the gospel. And so our passage begins in verse 34. He says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and, who, and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through, the, through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, this was a bodily, physical resurrection. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now let me say that Although it's been redefined lately, traditionally, racism has been defined as treating someone as inferior due to their skin color, which is, we know, ridiculous. It's certainly not right. But I would say that the label is all wrong. Why do I say that? Well, Scripture teaches that there is only one human race. There is only one human race. We're not made up of various races. We are made up of one human race with various ethnicities right? You might call it ethnicism then, right? But not all people of one skin color are the same ethnicity, and people tend to base their disdain on skin color and not ethnicity, although that does happen. My neighbors, for instance, are Jamaican. They're black, but they don't like to be called African-American since that's not where they originate from, right? Anika is white. She's an African-American. She came from South Africa, right? If someone can convince you that there are separate races, being racist is made much easier, right? But a biblical worldview forces us and claims that there's only one race, humanity, originating from one shared ancestor. God created all peoples in his image, making it impossible for me or anybody else to hate someone based on their skin color. Everyone is an image bearer of God in this world. We are one shared human race. And God calls us to love all peoples, forcing us to deal with individuals on merit and not on external unchangeable characteristics. Our own Anika McMenamin grew up, as I said, in South Africa, where she was taught as a young girl that whites were superior. 
conflicted as a young girl. She started to study the scriptures to clear up her confusion. Eventually, she came away with a biblical worldview of love and respect for all peoples. She took her thoughts captive to Christ. She renounced familial racism, and she started to view people through the lens of Jesus ever since. Amen to that. And in Acts, we find that even with the Holy Spirit and even with all that Jesus taught them, the disciples still had their lessons to learn. So we might have to ask ourselves today, where is my worldview not reflective of Christ to the point that I view others as unclean or unworthy or I just don't want to be around them? The gospel changes us. Look, you know, it knocks down barriers, cultural barriers, societal barriers. Everyone is viewed as fellow image bearers of God in need of salvation through the gospel. The last two decades have seen a surprising trend among the Indian untouchables, the untouchable caste called the Dalit, who don't belong to one of the four accepted castes uh, of the Varna system. They're converting basically, en masse to Christianity. In India, the caste system separates people, not allowing the movement between castes, right? You're born into a caste, you die in in a caste, and and it's a system that is written into their constitution and into their worldview. It's how they view reality, right? But Indian Christians, Indians who have become Christians, taking on a biblical worldview, welcome the untouchable, right? Right? Drawn by acceptance, escaping governmental and societal persecution, thousands across India have been converting to Christ. In the Sirkat district of Nepal, approximately 50,000 Dalit have have converted from Hinduism to Christianity, escaping all this discrimination that they have known all their lives. And this is what Peter proclaims today. Jesus equally receives all who repent who come to him by grace through faith, right? So Cornelius sends for Peter, and notice whether Peter uh, proclaims Jesus to the Jewish high priest or to a Gentile Roman centurion, the substance of his message remains unchanged. That being, Jesus was a great man of power, he was crucified, he died, he rose from the dead, and there is forgiveness in his name. And the application is, the gospel is a message for all peoples. It's not fluid in the sense that we can discard part of it at certain times or places or points in history. You can't tailor it to make it more palatable to certain listeners. You can't bend it to have it make more sense in our cultural moment. Rather, the same gospel substance is to be shared with all peoples at all times, all throughout history, and in all places. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says that to the whole world. There's only one way to everlasting life with God, Jesus. Whether we're talking to a Hindu Dalit or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Roman centurion or an atheist or a Jewish high priest. God has revealed and communicated himself to humanity only in the person of Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't have multiple personality disorder. He is. And who he is, we find only in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is something his followers must become comfortable with and confident in since we are called to the ministry of reconciliation. We are called to bring this message to the world. The Christian worldview, right? The the true reality of humanity out of which we live with every thought taken captive to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean the message isn't, is communicated the same exact way in every situation. Peter doesn't spend a whole lot of time appealing to Old Testament prophets with Cornelius, although he mentions it as, it, as he did in Acts 2 with a Jewish audience. There isn't just one way to share the gospel, but the gospel shared should be the same gospel substance regardless with whom we share. There are not many paths to God. There are not. There's only one. And true love dictates that we must, that must be made clear to anyone that we come in contact with. Though the core message is the same, there is a new emphasis on the application of the gospel for Peter. God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. Well, what's that mean in his context? Well, Cornelius was, as I said, a Gentile. Therefore, he wasn't included in God's covenant with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Jewish ceremonial laws governed Jewish thought and practice as to what was clean or unclean, extending to food, to clothing, to the people whom whom one could uh, associate and all that stuff. And these laws helped visually and physically to reinforce the importance of dealing with sin, of, of God's holiness in light of sin, right? To be in his presence meant doing everything possible to avoid contamination of sin. And Jews extrapolated that, that to consider that Gentiles were no different in their unclean state than a pig or a dog. That's what they were saying. But Israel was always called, always called to be a light to the nations, always called to bring the message of salvation to all peoples, even before Christ showed up on the, on the scene. There have always been an inroad into the Jewish faith even before Christ, including this baptismal rite of of passage as symbolism of coming to faith in the God of Israel. Jesus didn't bring a new gospel. We're going to talk about this next week. It wasn't something different. God didn't change his mind in Jesus. This was from the very beginning. Even the court of the Gentiles in the front of the Holy Temple was a reminder to the Jews that they were to be a witness to the other nations. They were supposed to be proclaiming this this God of the universe to these people and bringing them in. that, 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 That even the Gentiles could also walk with God in repentance and in faith. But in their holy calling to be separate, they are they had taken that as a license to hate and to look down. On others, and that was never, ever God's intention. Never. Peter realizes in his divine encounter with Cornelius that all peoples are worthy as God's creation to hear the gospel. And that contamination comes in my own willingness to involve myself in sin or, or when I compromise truth, not in my sharing God, sharing the message of the gospel with people. As Christians, we are called 
to the ministry of reconciliation to all peoples. And what God has made clean, let no one declare to be unclean. So what we find is that the gospel is the great leveler. Despite background and sin and success or failure or ethnicity, when you come to the cross of Christ, you are made new no matter who you are. Peter proclaimed the gospel that day and he realized the truth of an impartial God. That's something that Paul would celebrate later when he declared there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all in one in Christ Jesus, right? And that's not to be interpreted through the lens, the worldview lens of our culture today where we're saying there is no gender, there's no sex difference, that people are all the same, there's no male or female. That's not what it says. It just says that we are all equal in Christ. Of course there were still slaves, and of course there were still free people when Paul wrote that. But he's saying in Christ we are all equal, right? See, it's vital for us to keep clear the Christian worldview, to think, to wrestle with it, right? To guard understanding of the true gospel and to live out of it because it makes a difference in how we view and we treat others. And if we don't, we become destructive. Substance the same, ways of communicating it vary. So here's the question. Which people do we, consciously or unconsciously, treat as unclean or unworthy or I just don't want to be around? Republicans and Democrats, listen up, right? Whom do we avoid and how does that align with the proclamation of Peter on that day to a Gentile centurion? How does that align with the visions that God gave both to Cornelius and to Peter? Amen? Amen. Or at least I'm saying amen. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the, the, the biblical worldview. The worldview that says that everybody is valuable, that everybody is made in your image, although that image is in, is, has been broken or shattered, it can be repaired in Christ. And that that is something that we cannot earn on ourselves and we cannot maintain, even maintain ourselves. We are imperfect in our fleshly selves. But you have made accommodation for that. You have taken sin upon yourself so that we can have, find freedom in you. And so we just pray that this gospel substance, this gospel true message would seep down into our very, the very core of our being, that it would be the worldview with which we look out onto the world with and how we view others and how we view the world, how we view animals and money and belongings and what we do and what we think and everything else. We pray that you and we submit ourselves to you to define those things for us. You have revealed it all in your scriptures. We ask that you would give us the, the, the creative intelligence to apply it to our hearts and to walk in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.